Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, July 28th, 2010. Oh, man. Rough night sleeping last night. I've been in a funk, fog, haze the whole day. I can't even believe that it's program time. Oh, <laughs> It's one of those nights, strange, weird dreams. You know, the kind that jolts you awake. Yeah, that was my night last night. <sighs> Maybe I ate the wrong thing for dinner. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically and to help you to think critically and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Um, just because you have an opinion about God doesn't mean that your opinion is worth anything. Uh, now, I know that might sound blunt. That might sound like it's in your face. It might even hurt your self-esteem. Um, if you're listening to uh, Christian radio in order to find programs that will build your self-esteem, you definitely don't want to listen to this one because uh, I'm going to tell you that you're a sinner and that you need a Savior and that uh, you have no righteousness in and of yourself that can possibly stand before God or earn any brownie points with him, and instead you are completely broke, poor, and bankrupt spiritually before God, and uh, you need to repent of your wickedness and be forgiven for it all. Now, I know that sounds pretty terrible, doesn't it? But that's actually the biblical message, that none of us is righteous. No, not one. Not even me. Not you. Not, like, not even me. <laughs> yeah, because I come so close. You know, I, I'm just, you know, oh, no, I, not even me. I mean that in the sense that... Yeah, you think I'm righteous. Oh, good night. Spend a day with me. Uh, five minutes is pretty much all it'll take for you to figure out, yeah, well, this guy's a sinner. Yeah, because <laughs> I am. Anyway, so uh, this program is, uh, it, it basically challenges people's opinions. I mean, for whatever reason, uh, people seem to think that their ideas, their opinions, their notions, their imaginations the machinations of their mind the their creativity the their their liver shivers whatever that all of those things that somehow are giving them you know an inside track to how god really is that somehow those opinions uh carry some kind of weight that we should all be listening to them and going oh that's such profound insight regarding god i look at it and go yeah the scubalon it's just absolute bovine scatology not interested in it i'll go with what the bible says because i can trust that as for the other stuff yeah uh, it needs to be tested against the clear teaching of the word of god and if it's found wanting or in conflict with god's word 
Well, then I'm instructed to, well, reject it, and so is everybody else, because you're not really teaching us stuff about God. You're just teaching us stuff that you've made up about God and somehow think that it's clever. And I'm not into clever. I'm into revealed religion. And so that's what we do here. It's all about discernment. What does God say? What does God's word say? It's rough and tumble. We try to have a little bit of fun along the way. And uh, again, I'm not here to build up your self-esteem, to make you feel better, to help you actualize yourself or what any of that that stuff that people are throwing, like those words mean anything anyway. I mean, what is self-actualization? I mean, it just sounds like self-idolatry to me. I mean, that's pretty much what I'm hearing. <sighs> yeah, maybe I should have gotten more sleep before I came to the radio today. <laughs> I just don't sound very kind and loving. I mean, people don't want to, after listening to that, I'm sure nobody wants to come up and give me a big hug and say, oh, Chris, you're just such a loving, fuzzy guy, you know? Yes, I'm large. Anyway, um, <laughs> today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Oh, man. I wanted to get to some email today. However, it got bumped. It Email probably tomorrow. I just want to let you know I am behind. I do hope to uh, answer some email tomorrow um, or at least read it on the air. Um, Man, today's the stories. Um, well, we're going to begin, you know, kind of in in the key or the theme that we started off with in the opening monologue. Uh, the idea here is is uh, we're going to read a story from the Huffington Post that asks a great theological question. This is a fine question, and uh, the question is: Were Sodom and Gomorrah really torched for homosexuality? This is a great question. And, uh, well, I don't have a lot of hope that the uh, folks at the Huffington Post are going to answer this question uh, in light of what God's Word has revealed about it. In fact, we might get some very interesting opinions. But um, that being said, um, it's worth reading and exploring the question and seeing if God's Word reveals anything in regard to this. Um, And then I got audio from a video. I kid you not. Yesterday in the Wall Street Journal, uh, Ted Haggard um, made the claim that uh, he over-repented. Yeah, uh, my my eyeballs hurt just thinking about it. Yeah, Ted Haggard over-repented. And uh, what, I mean, like, what does that even mean? You either repent or you don't repent. You either are, you either confess that what you did was wrong and sinful before God and you uh, you are forgiven for it or you didn't. I seriously doubt that any of us is capable of over-repenting. Um, but there's some kind of... I'm going to play some audio from a video on this because I, I think the guy who's opining uh, has the right level of incredulity while um, <clears throat> over this over-repentance statement that, um, that it's worth passing along. Um, and then, I mean, literally on the heels of yesterday, I read a story about a, a gal in Georgia who uh, who's being told she has to go into remediation regarding the fact that uh, she uh, may not be able to graduate with her counseling degree because of the fact that she holds to the view that homosexuality is sinful. Now, we covered a similar story on this one a few months back. There was a gal in Michigan uh, who had a similar problem. And, well, the uh, U.S. federal courts have uh, issued an, well, a, a, a ruling, a judgment on this, and it's not good. It's not good news at all. In fact, I, I detect that we're in for uh, a pretty long uh, and protracted um, battle. And I'm not convinced that uh, Christians are going to win this one. I don't think that I, I just with the way everything is right now, 
um, it's pretty much open season on Christians, and the, uh, the the issue of homosexuality seems to be the lightning rod issue. So we'll be covering that story today. I, this is just ridiculous. Uh, folks, this is not how to witness to your Muslim friends. I've got a story for uh, the Florida church is planning on a, on burn a Quran day uh, to mark the uh, nine-year nine anniversary of the 9-11 uh, terrorist attacks, and yeah, I'm telling you, this is just wrong. This is yeah, this is not how we witness to our Muslim neighbors and share the gospel with them. And then, time permitting, I want you to hear some audio from a video from a gal by the name of Heidi Baker. And uh, yeah, this is uh, she's this is from a video where she's prophesying for Australia for 2010. And um. Maybe it's just me, but uh, what she says and how she says it just sounds like, um, well, she's demon possessed. So, uh, <laughs> with and, and then an hour, yeah, I'm serious. You just got to hear it. And you'll see what I'm saying. Well, actually, you won't see it. You'll hear what I'm saying. Um, I hate it when I use uh, optical language when I'm on the radio. I, you know, I can see my, you know, but you can't. That's <laughs> so when it comes to optics, when it comes to radio, I'm capable of seeing what I'm looking at while I'm doing the radio, but you can't see it because this is radio. This is not video. And so I'm always mixing my metaphors. Ay, ay, ay. Anyway, hour number two today, we have a good sermon review. Uh, I got a sermon, a, a nice expository sermon by Phil Johnson. And uh, Phil Johnson, uh, the Pyromaniacs blog, he, uh, he also was a uh, pastor preacher and uh man I tell you he's got a great expository sermon that he did on Exodus chapter 20 verse 3 you shall have no other gods before me what does that mean and i need to warn you ahead of time this sermon is 95% flamethrower law i mean It'll burn your eyebrows off, most of your hair, um, probably leave your nose mangled. I mean, this is just a scorcher as far as the law is concerned. And the thing is, is that uh, Phil doesn't even have to turn up the volume for the law to do its scorching work. And uh, one of the reasons I chose it is because, number one, it's an important topic. Okay, this is foundational biblical stuff. You shall have no other gods before me. Uh, this, the, you, you, We never as Christians get away from the basics and from basic catechesis. And so uh, the, it's it's relevant in that sense. It's timely in the sense that we we now have people in within the visible church. That doesn't mean they're Christians, but the people within the visible church who are basically calling for uh, uh, pluralism uh, and uh, claiming that uh, it doesn't matter what God you believe in. No, no, it doesn't matter at all. I mean. Oh. <laughs> All roads lead to lead to God. Now, it, what the irony here is, is that somebody pointed this out on Facebook, and I like it, so I'm stealing it. And I can't remember who said it offhand, but somebody wrote on my Facebook wall that all roads do lead to God. They all roads, all religions lead to the throne room of God. Every single one of them. This is a great point. However, um, not all religions. Those who follow different religions, they're not when they stand before God in his throne room on Judgment Day. Um, not everybody's going to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. 
uh, you are the you know, you are innocent. You are declared righteous. Instead, they're going to hear, hear depart from me. I never knew you, you wicked and evil servants and things of that, of that nature. So all religions do lead to God. The the question is, what's going to be the verdict in the courtroom? That's the question. Um, but anyway, um, so the, Phil Johnson's sermon is is fantastic. And listen, uh, when it comes to preaching law and gospel, it's not a formula. You don't sit there and you go, okay, we got to make sure we got 50% law and then 50% gospel. If you if you've ever read the sermons of Luther, yikes! I mean, uh, um, Luther's sermons um, are in are similar to Phil Johnson's sermon in this sense that many of Luther's sermons they're really super duper heavy on the law, and then you get you get the gospel somewhere in the sermon. In uh, Phil Johnson's uh, sermon, you're going to hear the gospel at the end. But for the first yeah, 95, 96, 97% of the sermon, you are going to be uncomfortable because when, what he preaches is going to nail you. I don't care who you are. I, don't, I, know, I know I don't know many of you who are listening. Never met most of you who are listening. However, I guarantee that everybody listening to this podcast who hears this sermon, they're going to go, ooh, ouch, yikes, that one, I'm guilty. Yeah, that, that nailed me. Yeah, I'm, that's what the law is supposed to do. And so I'm holding this up as a good law gospel sermon in the sense that he is unashamedly and prophetically preaching God's law the way it's supposed to be preached, preached in a way that it just nails all of us. And the solution he offers isn't try harder. The solution he offers is Christ and him crucified for your sins. Yeah, good stuff. So... Uh, That'll be the balance of the program today. Make yourself comfortable. Again, keep in mind, your uh, listener experience is absolutely vital and critical to me. I mean, I would be a bad leader, you know, because it's so important nowadays to be a leader. I mean, I would be a bad vision-casting leader, and I wouldn't be fulfilling my mission and vision that God apparently has given me. I still don't know what those are. But uh, I wouldn't be uh, follow. you know, really wouldn't be a good leader if, if I wasn't concerned about your listener experience. So it's important to me that you have a positive listener experience, even though I'm about to destroy your self-esteem and say things that, well, are politically incorrect. But I want you to be comfortable while I'm doing that. So kick up your feet, fluff a pillow. You know, if you got one of those lumbar pillows, just you know, put it right there in the small of your back. You know, put the feet up, stretch out, <clears throat> relax. Put your hands over your head if you want to. You know, just kind of release the negative energy. And then, uh, of course, if you want to enjoy an adult beverage while listening to Fighting for the Faith, no problemo. Keep in mind, though, the Bible does have a, have a prohibition when it comes to abusing that wonderful gift that God has given us. Don't take it to the point of drunkenness. That That's where it crosses the line into sin. And then, of course, fuzzy bunny slippers. If you are in a cold weather climate at the moment, if weather permits, absolutely feel free to wear fuzzy bunny slippers, they do enhance your listener experience unless, of course, the weather is warm where you're at. In that case, it does detract. So with that, let's uh, dive into the program proper, and uh, let's cue up the vintage news music. From the Huffington Post. The question on the table is, were Sodom and Gomorrah really torched for homosexuality? This is written by John R. Coates, who's the author of Original Sinners, A New Interpretation of Genesis. Original Sinners, A New Interpretation of Genesis. Now, okay, now, before I even wade into these alligator-infested waters, okay, um, real simple, okay, 
Um, how would we know why Sodom and Gomorrah were torched? I mean, they did kind of have the whole, you know, sulfur and burning sulfur and, you know, that, that from heaven burning everything up. Yeah, that was kind of a bad experience for those folks that live, were living in Sodom and Gomorrah. But how would we know um, why they were torched? Okay, the Bible says clearly that they were, that it was a punishment from God. And uh, so that being the case, can we can we get into the mind of God? Is it possible for me to, you know, go and go down to Lowe's or to the Home Depot or here in the Midwest? We have this fantastic. Oh, good night. I'm I'm let me give myself a little bunny trail here for a second. We have the most amazing home improvement store in the Midwest. I, we did not. I did not have these in uh, California. The name of it is Menards, and uh, oh man, Home Depot is just a big box uh, store. It's horrible, cold, dank, you know, cavernous aisles that you get lost in, and you just feel like you're in a in a warehouse. Lowe's is somewhat better. Menards, you walk into that place, you feel like you are in someone's home. I'm telling you, uh, this is not good. And I'll tell you why this is not good, because um, I, I don't tell my wife this, but there are certain tools that I actually enjoy. And I don't actually I enjoy doing projects with my hands, but don't tell her that because then she'll give me the honeydew list. So if you tell her, I will deny it. And I don't care if you point her to the podcast. No, it's not going to help. Uh, that being the case, I mean, Menards is one of those places where I could imagine myself walking in on a Saturday morning and emerging sometime Sunday afternoon. Yeah. Uh, that that's, yeah, that's frightening and scary. Anyway, um, I'm off on, on, on a tangent, but here, here's the, um, so the question on the table is where could I go to find out why God torched Sodom and Gomorrah? I mean, any, anybody could make anything up about Sodom and Gomorrah. If there's no explanation given in God's word, there's no ladder that I can go to Menards and purchase and take that ladder and, you know, prop it up against a cloud and then climb the ladder and then, you know, peek into the throne room of God and maybe sneak into a secret filing drawers, you know, kind of, you know. Like kind of like a Jack and the Beanstalk kind of thing. Maybe I could go get some magic beans and put them in the earth, and then you know water them. And overnight, you know, this magic beanstalk will grow, and I can just climb up there and 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 sneak into God's secret filing cabinet. And you know, let's see here, S for Sodom, Sodom. Oh, here it is. And then you know, pull the file out, and then and then that would give me the reason for doing it. I mean, that's just not going to happen. So unless God tells us, unless God reveals why Sodom and Gomorrah were torched, well, then we have no way of figuring that out, right? Right. It's pretty straightforward. However, if God has revealed why Sodom and Gomorrah were torched, then somebody speculating as to why um their speculation is just well not worth anything it's just opinions it, it doesn't really help us at all now it just so happens that god's word does 
reveal the reasons. There's more than one, by the way. Okay. In fact, if you have a computerized Bible, I use uh, I use uh, two different Bible programs on my uh, Macintosh computer. I use Accord, and that's really my Accordance is my primary uh, program when I'm uh, doing biblical study. And then I also use uh, 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 Logia, which is uh, it, it, which is rapidly becoming a very very amazing tool on the Mac. It's not quite there yet, but uh, man, I think they're up to uh, the beta version three now for the Mac, and it's some pretty amazing and impressive stuff. Anyway, so um, if you were to have a computerized Bible and you type in the the term Sodom, and you expand your search so that Sodom, the term the word Sodom is uh, is is you looked at in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, then you could get what God has said about this. And it just so happens that that's what I'm prepared to do. However, um, let's read this article by uh, John Coates, the author of Original Sinners, A New Interpretation of Genesis. And let's see if he goes to what God has revealed about Sodom and Gomorrah to answer the question. The question is, were Sodom and Gomorrah really torched for homosexuality? Okay, It's either yes or no. And there's only one way to find out. God has either told us or he hasn't told us. If God has told us, if the reason that God has given us and has revealed mentions that homosexuality and sexual perversion is a reason, then the answer is yes. If God, in his revelation as to why, doesn't say that, instead gives another reason, then the answer is no. If God has not revealed it, then there's no way of knowing. Plain and simple, this is real simple logic, and I know postmoderns hate it, but get over it. This is the way real truth operates. Okay, So uh, here's what John Coates writes. He says, he says, were Sodom and Gomorrah really torched for homosexuality? Answer, no. <clears throat> this is his answer, not the biblical one, but let's see what he says. For a more detailed answer, I'll begin with an overview of the fable. Oh, okay, okay. Two messengers or angels, Hebrew uh, Ma Alak and Greek Angelos, arrived at the gates of Sodom. Their lot, Abraham's nephew, greets them and invites them into his home for the night, where a meal has been prepared. Soon a mob gathers outside of Lot's door and demands that he serve up his guests for a gang rape, which appears to be something of a local tradition. <laughs> yeah. You might want to avoid that part of the world. <clears throat> Lot, a relative newcomer to Sodom, goes out and asks that they leave his guests alone and offers his two virgin daughters in their place. But the mob, incensed by the new guy's uppity attitude, decides it'll just start with him. And as the crowd surges forward, the messengers open the door, grab Lot, pull him in. Outside, an intense light leaves the crowd temporarily blind. Inside, the messengers tell Lot, gather up his family and get out of town immediately because they plan to destroy it. Sure enough, just after dawn, the whole valley explodes. Okay, back to the motive. Um, those who uh, were vile people in both those cities, as is well known, says Kurt Vonnegut's Billy Pilgrim, quote, the world was uh, was better off without them. No argument there. But exactly what about them was vile? Was it that they were homosexuals? The text itself makes no such claim. In fact, in fact, James Kugel, star professor emeritus of classical and modern Hebrew literature at Harvard University and currently chair of the Institute for the History of the Jewish Bible at Bar Elan University, Tel Aviv, writes 
that the early interpreters were perplexed about the city of Sodom. God destroyed it because of the terrible things that were being done there. But what exactly were those things? Strangely, the Genesis narrative does not say. In other words, what homosexuality? Richard Elliott Friedman, professor of Hebrew and comparative literature at the University of California, San Diego, tells us that there is no basis for this whatsoever. The text says that two people come to Sodom and that all of the people of Sodom come and say, let's know them. And homosexuality interpretation apparently comes from misunderstanding the Hebrew word uh, anisim, which meant, uh, which to mean men instead of people. Now, this is the argument, right? <clears throat> uh, there's a problem here. Um, here's the problem. Um, John R. Coates is, um, he's pulling a fast one. Yeah, he is. Um, see, here's the issue is that, um, God's word actually does give the answer to this and it's not found in the Hebrew narrative. Now, Understand something here is that the Bible contains several different types of literature. One is historical narrative. And oftentimes, the historical narratives recorded in the Bible have theologically significant events in them and the theological, uh, the theological implications and the theological teaching that corresponds with those historical narratives are not found in the narratives themselves, but are later found in other genres of writings in the Bible that give us the theological significance of those events. For instance, all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all contain graphic accounts of Jesus Christ's death, crucifixion at the hands of the Romans, and resurrection from the grave. All of them are in the historical narrative biographies written by the gospel writers. However, not much of not much theological significance or interpretation of those historical events are is given are given in the gospels. There is some amount of that going on, but the clearest theological interpretations of Christ's crucifixion are not found in the Gospels. They're found in the epistles as well as in the book of Isaiah and and, and other places in the scriptures. So if you want to understand the theological interpretation of those historical events in those historical narrative accounts, you are best to go to the books in the scriptures where where the theology is clearly taught regarding what was happening in those historical events. Same occurs here regarding Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, now, going over to uh, Accordance here, I'm looking for the word Sodom, okay? I've typed in the word Sodom, and I'm looking for all texts within the Bible, and I'm going to use the ESV, okay? When I hit the return button, what I found, what I find is that the word Sodom is found 47, nope, 48 times in in the Bible, 48 times Sodom is mentioned in the Bible. Most of those instances occur in the book of Genesis, which is to be, um, which is co- completely understandable. Okay, other times uh, it's mentioned in the book of Isaiah, Deuteronomy, uh, Jeremiah. Um, okay, uh, let's see. Yeah, Jeremiah 49 and 50. Um, it's mentioned there in Lamentations, in the book of Ezekiel, 
But it's also mentioned in the epistle of Jude. Hmm? If you have your Bible, go to the epistle of Jude. Okay, Jude only has one chapter. One. Okay, it's a short little letter. And it is inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by one of the half-brothers of Jesus. And in this little tiny epistle, written by a Jew, God reveals the answer to the question that's on the table, were Sodom and Gomorrah really torched for homosexuality? See, John Coates here is making the argument, well, it doesn't say in the Hebrew text, and people are misreading the Genesis account and the Hebrew in the Genesis account. Oh, John, you're just misleading people because you've forgotten to tell them about everything written in the Bible about Sodom and Gomorrah. Let's see what Jude says. Okay, I'll begin at verse 1. Context, context, context. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, though I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. You see, God, the Holy Spirit, did reveal the answer to the question that John Coates asks. He asks the question, were Sodom and Gomorrah really torched for homosexuality? When you collect all of the data, we have one bit of data that John Coates purposely omitted. Jude, verse 7. By the way, Okay, let me read it again. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. Kai epelthusai apizosarkos heteros is the Greek there. And it basically means that they pursued... Um, Improperly strange flesh, sexual desire, sexual immorality by pursuing strange flesh. This is a euphemism, a Hebraism of sorts, that um, is referring to homosexuality, plain and simple. 
So the answer to the question is yes. What was the question? Were Sodom and Gomorrah really torched for homosexuality? The answer is yes. God's word clearly shows that that's the case. And John Coates, by not giving you all of the data, came to the wrong conclusion, the wrong answer. And I, in fact, I mean, he quoted people who are PhDs and people who are Hebrew scholars and Jews and things like that. Don't don't you think that's kind of a little dishonest on his part? I mean, mean, why would I, in answering this question, go only to Hebrew scholars? You, You do keep in mind that modern-day Jews reject the New Testament. So if I went to them, of course they wouldn't have access to or really wouldn't consider what Jude wrote to be valid. But when you consider the full counsel of the Word of God, the New Testament, which modern-day Jewish scholars reject, yet it's valid because of Christ and his resurrection from the dead because he is the Messiah despite the fact they've rejected him as such, clearly says that homosexuality was the real reason why Sodom and Gomorrah were torched. We're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> So the new pastor came in and shut down the Sunday school, uh, canceled the adult Bible study, no. dumped the hymnals, <sighs> sacked the choir, and put Damn. in a praise band and started preaching sermons that sound like they could be preached or done on Dr. Phil's program. It's awful. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Our chief weapon is purpose. Purpose and vision. Vision and purpose are two weapons. Our purpose and vision and ruthless relevance are three weapons. Our purpose, vision, and ruthless relevance and an almost fanatical devotion to record are four weapons. Now, amongst our weaponry are such elements as purpose, vision. I'll I'll come in again. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects a purpose-driven inquisition. Amongst our weaponry are such diverse elements as purpose, vision, 
ruthless relevance, and almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren and nice Hawaiian Jerto. Damn. I can't say it. You'll have to say it. Uh, what? You'll have to say what the bit about our cheap weapons are. Uh, I, I couldn't do that. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, nobody uh, expects. Uh, expects no. Nobody expects the um, purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, I, I know. I know. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. In fact, those who yeah, do chief ex- weapons are our chief weapons are um, purpose uh, uh, vision. Okay. And- okay. Stop. Stop that. Stop that. Our chief weapons are purpose. Blah 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 blah. Youth, Pastor Rick. Read the charges. Dude, you're like hereby charged with being divisive and not following our program. That's enough! Now, how do you plead? Well, we're innocent. innocent. Ha! 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 <laughs> we'll soon change your mind about that! Dr. Rod Rosenblatt discussing the church's need for world-class scholarship and the unique way in which the British academic model offered at the Wittenberg Institute can help provide you with a top-level postgraduate theological degree. Christians are dependent on good scholarship in a way that sometimes we forget. Think of Tyndall House in England. Some of those evangelicals were so ruled away from the big table conversation in the Church of England that they had to develop graduate training under particular guys who had a high view of Christ and a high view of Scripture. Over the years, they did marvelous stuff with individual young scholars who came there to be trained. So what's the difference between the European model and the American model? The European is used to saying things like, I studied under so-and-so, and the American, uh, that's pretty foreign. And I'm not here talking about the diploma mills. I'm talking about somebody who is tutored, something like Oxford or at Cambridge, and uh, walked through graduate work. If you would like more information about the Wittenberg Institute's British-styled research master's degree, then visit them on the web at wittenberginstitute.org forward slash PCR or call them at area code 425-533-8659. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. 
warning. The Bible uh, defines people who are wicked as those who suppress the truth. So only giving part of what God's word says is a form of suppressing the truth. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com, all one big word squished together. And uh, when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing mission and work of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And that's wonderful when you do that because uh, the more people that do that, the the easier it is for us to make it through lean months and to uh, meet our monthly budgeted expenses, which, by the way, are just about ready to go up again. But uh, we'll talk about that when we're finished with our our budget for 2011, which is coming up in October. But in, in the meantime... Uh, if, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you can like, you would like to contribute, you can make a one-time donation by clicking on the donate button or make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it along to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, looking at uh, our time here and looking at our stories. Okay, uh, moving along from msnbc.com. Oh, man. Um. Mm. The, uh, the Ted Haggard is saying that he uh, over repented. I I don't know what that term means. Over repentance. It's not something that's actually um, well um, in the Bible. But uh, listen carefully. In 2006, as president of the National Association of Evangelicals, Ted Haggard preached about the sinfulness of homosexuality and keeping secrets while he was smoking crystal meth and engaging in sex with a male prostitute. Yeah, that, that would be called hypocrisy. Yeah, that's what we call that. By the way, the Bible does say homosexuality is a sin. And I do think that uh, illegal narcotic use definitely would fall under the sinful category as well. So if you're preaching against it and doing it, that... Hmm, <laughs> that creates some problems. Haggard's congregation wasn't thrilled. He was forced to resign, and he voluntarily apologized to anyone who would listen. In our number two story, talking about the fiasco with the Wall Street Journal today, Haggard revealed that all the apologies he offered for his sordid scandal resulted in over-repenting. Oh, no. Yeah, why? <clears throat> the question immediately comes up. Why would Ted Haggard make the claim that he, quote, over-repented? Could it possibly have anything to do with the fact that he's um, started a new congregation there in uh, in Colorado and that uh, he's already got 300 people attending this new congregation and that it bills itself as, a, a, as an all-inclusive community? Could that possibly be what it is that he see because he he can't go back and unapologize for that and because basically his apology is a is an admission that what he did was sinful and wrong that homosexuality is sinful and wrong and now he's trying to create a new all-inclusive community there in uh, colorado springs and um, so he can't go back and change the record but he can reinterpret it by saying you know what listen i don't know what i was thinking (laughs) you know I just over-repented. Trying to get a new, all-inclusive church off the ground, Haggard told the journal, quote, 
Tiger Woods needs to golf. Michael Vick needs to be playing football. Ted Haggard needs to be leading a church. Wow, there's such a wow, that's such a tight argument. The logic is so compelling. I feel overcome by the logic of the argument. Uh, by the way, this isn't a biblical argument. Um I would basically make the claim that biblically um in in light of what's happened and the complete scandal surrounding it that Ted Hager biblically actually is no longer qualified to be a pastor. I mean, here's my question. Why do we need pastors who um who why does somebody need a pastor who's had these major big scandals? Uh, are there just not enough guys out there who properly handle God's word, who are just plain vanilla guys who, you know, they're married, they have a few kids, they haven't done anything um, sexually exotic, uh, to the, especially to the point of um, <clears throat> getting national attention and it being a complete scandal. Um, are there just not enough of those guys out there? I mean, that we have to have um, Ted Haggard's be our pastors? Haggard now describes the sex he had with a male prostitute as a massage that went awry. Oh, my. Yeah, this is so postmodern, isn't it? I mean, he's a a bit, look, he's over-repented, and now, listen, 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 uh, come on, let's get real about what's happening. He's deconstructing his own sinful, uh, his own sin that led to his fall from the pulpit and grace and all that other kind of stuff and (laughs) it was a massage gone awry see right it was a massage gone awry so there was this dude and the dude was giving you a massage and one thing led to another and next thing you know you were having intercourse with him while smoking crystal meth and you see that it's it i admit that 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 definitely does sound like a massage that's gone awry but it's more than just that you see cuz the awry part the the details of the awryness of that particular massage incident they're kind of important um because you were um doing a dude um yeah, um, I don't know if that's normal behavior to occur during massages, but I suspect probably not. And, and I mean, and by the way, have you heard of this word? No. Okay. Now, call me close-minded. You know, uh, you can. And people have called me worse, but. If for some reason I found myself having a massage, okay, I, you know, maybe somebody gave me a gift certificate to one of those day spa kind of things, okay, and the only person available to do the massage was a dude. And while the dude was giving me the Swedish massage or whatever it is that he was doing that happens in day spas, and he said, hey, honey, how about you and I, you know, I'd say, not on your life, dude. This massage is over. I want to talk to your manager, and I would like a full refund. I didn't come here to have you hit on me. <clears throat> you see, that's what you could have done, Ted, uh, Ted, but 
keep in mind, when your massage went awry, you had an erotic encounter with the dude who was massaging you. <laughs> the Bible says a few things about that. The Bible doesn't talk about homosexuality as well, you know, <laughs> just... Uh, just human sexual behavior gone awry. <laughs> no, God's word describes it as an abomination. Yeah, read Leviticus 18. So notice what he's doing here. He's deconstructing his own, his own sinful thing and basically making it, uh, I over-repented. It, my massage just went awry. And he says the ensuing apologies for his deception and hypocrisy on Oprah, Larry King, and elsewhere went too far. According to... So his apologies went too far. Hmm. <clears throat> Just a real quick question. I mean, whose side does it sound like Pastor Haggard? I mean, because he's a pastor again. Uh, wh whose side does he sound like he's on now? The side of God and God's clear teaching and what his word says? Or does it sound like he's um, making concessions and basically impugning God's word and finding a way to get out of what it clearly teaches? I mean, in order to build his all-inclusive community, um, it would be tough to build it as an all-inclusive community if, you know, you were saying that sex, homosexual... Sex is sin. Haggard, I over-repented. So the preacher now apparently has some extra sinning to do that he's already repented for. Or maybe he can transfer that balance to me since I have a tendency to under-repent for my sins. Yeah, I don't think you can do it that way. Yeah. Um, the, you know, the medieval monasteries try to kind of work on that kind of a system. You know, they over-repented and, and did extra good works for people. And it supposedly got the, all that extra grace got built up into some kind of a bank account that can be doled out to people by the church. Yeah, it doesn't work that way. Whatever the outcome, Haggard's remarks make his original apology truly worthy of retroactive inclusion into the new over-repenters wing of the Countdown Apology Hall of Fame. Wow. Um, yeah, I think this guy has the correct um, level of um, incredulity when it comes to Haggard's claims regarding his over-repentance and that his, well, it was just a massage gone awry. Pray for Ted Haggard, folks. He needs to repent. And he, has, he obviously hasn't repented enough. Okay, moving along, kind of in the bad news category here. Um, this we, we talked about this gal a few months ago. Uh, this is the story from uh, from the state of Michigan. The headline from the FoxNews.com website reads: "Court upholds expulsion of counseling student who opposes homosexuality." Yeah, this is this doesn't bode well for that 24-year-old gal down in Georgia. Uh, listen to this. A federal judge has ruled in favor of a public university that removed a Christian student from its graduate program in school counseling over her belief that homosexuality is morally wrong. Monday's ruling, according to Julia Ward's attorney, could result in Christian students across the country being expelled from public universities for similar views. Quote, it's a very dangerous precedent. Jeremy Tedesco 
Legal counsel for the Conservative Alliance Defense Fund told Fox News Radio the ruling doesn't say that explicitly, but that's what is going to happen. U.S. District uh, Judge George Karamsti dismissed Ward's lawsuit against Eastern Michigan University. She was removed from the school's counseling program last year because she refused to counsel homosexual clients. The university contended she violated school policy and the American Counseling Association Code of Ethics. Yeah, Code of Ethics. Yeah, a Code of Ethics that basically attacks Christians for standing morally on on God's word. Yeah, I, I think the uh, American Counseling Association's Code of Ethics is misnamed. It should be the Code of Immorality. A uh, Christian student shouldn't be expelled for holding to and abiding by their beliefs, said ADF Senior Counsel David French. Quote, to reach its decision, the court had to do something that's never been done in federal court, uphold an extremely broad and vague university speech code. Eastern Michigan University hailed the decision, Quote, we are pleased that the court has upheld our position in this matter. EMU spokesman Walter Kraft said in a written statement, Julia Ward was not discriminated against because of her religion. To the contrary, Eastern Michigan is deeply committed to the education of our students and welcomes individuals from diverse backgrounds into our community. Unless, of course, the background you come from is a Christian background and you hold that homosexuality is sinful and immoral. In his uh, 48-page opinion, Judge Stee said that the university had a rational basis for adopting the ACA Code of Ethics. Quote, furthermore, the university had a rational basis for requiring students to counsel clients without imposing their personal values, he wrote in a portion of his ruling posted by the Detroit News. Quote, in the case of Ms. Ward, the university determined that she would never change her behavior and would consistently refuse to counsel clients on matters with which she was personally opposed due to her religious beliefs, including homosexual relationships. Uh, Ward's attorneys claimed the university told her she would only be allowed to remain in the program if she went through a remediation program so that she could see the error of her ways and change her belief system about homosexuality. That sounds familiar. The case is similar to the lawsuit the ADF filed against Augusta State University in Georgia. Counseling student Jennifer Keaton was allegedly told to stop sharing her Christian beliefs in order to graduate. Keaton's lawsuit alleged that she was told to undergo a re-education program and attend a diversity sensitivity training. Uh, University officials declined to comment on the specifics of the lawsuit, but released a statement to Fox News that said, Augusta State does not discriminate on the basis of student moral, religious, political, or personal beliefs. Tedesco said both cases should be a warning to Christians attending public colleges and universities. Quote, public universities are imposing the ideological stances of private groups on their students, he said. If you don't comply, you will be kicked out. It's scary stuff. And it's not a difficult thing to see what's coming down the pike. The Alliance Defense Fund told Fox News that it will appeal the ruling. So it begins. So it begins. Outright persecution of Christians in the United States of America. All right, one more item before we go into our second break. Got audio from a video, a gal by the name of Heidi Baker uh, uh, prophesying at Jubilee Church in Sydney, Australia, uh, giving a prophecy for Australia for the year 2010. I know it's the middle of the year, uh, but I just wanted to pass this along because, well, 
Uh, folks, if somebody's prophesying, you've got to test their stuff against the Word of God. And um, see if this sounds biblical to you or if it sounds satanic. I mean, just, you know, listen carefully. Yeah, that that's Heidi Baker. Shakababa. Yay, God. We love you guys. Now, there's a full auditorium of people um, listening to this woman. <clears throat> and uh, there's a bunch of kids on stage. And I mean, like toddlers, like, you know, kindergarten, first grade, second grade kids. Hey. And um, I just have a word before Roland shares. I just have a word. Whoa. I feel like, ho, like Shabbat. Whoa. I have. Oh, she follows Patricia King in the gang. Uh, Shabbat. I have a word over Australia. Shakaraba. I just feel like the river of God's glory is increasing in this nation. I see Revelation 22, the river coming from the throne and of the Lamb. Shakaraba. And I feel like God is just going to increase his glory and his. I feel like, I feel like, I feel, yeah, huh. His love. And I feel like the way that us. Yeah, I, I feel like, woman, you, you don't know what you're talking about and what you're preaching is complete lies in the name of God. This is a form of blasphemy. This is what it means to take the name of the Lord in vain. Australians are going to come to the Lord by the thousands and the tens of thousands. They're going to come as the church lives like a family. Whoa! And I see churches becoming homes of the loving believer. I see people being set free to be who they are. And I feel like fathers and mothers... And I see Heidi Baker standing before God and having to explain this nonsense to him. ...are going to be raised up, and the lost children of us... Australia are going to come home to the Father. And I feel like it's as brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, grandmothers and grandmothers, and even little children go, go out to the streets, to the highways and the byways, out, out, out. The Lord's sending you out, out, out. And as you stop for the one, as you stop for the one in front of you and you spend time with them, he said, Love looks like something. It looks like you spending time, like you drinking coffee with them, like you sitting in the park with them, like you embracing them in their loneliness. And God's going to send the church out as lovers. And he said the river of his glory loves increasing. Oh, brother, what a load of pablum. Yeah, if she's hearing from God, then I'm the Easter bunny. Yeah, no, this this is... And he says the net will increase as the body of Christ networks together for the harvest. He says he's looking for a body that will be woven together by the love of God. Past denominations. She is like convulsing. I mean, this is scary to watch. And movements. He said it'll be past denominations and movements. And one brother will serve another. And a sister, a brother, shut and the Lord is sending literally the angelic host with a silver cord, a cord of love. And he's binding together the body of. Yeah, you know, I would rather um, read uh, just a chapter from the Bible than allow a woman like this to <clears throat> blather on for five minutes or ten minutes. In a... She has no business in a church whatsoever. That's not from God.
Yeah, sorry, it ain't. That's blasphemy that we're hearing here. That that doesn't even remotely sound like or even accord with God's word. All right, we're up on our uh, second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Sermon review coming up. It's a good one. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, frenzy, turning photo written music, you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Are you tired of giving gifts that are as boring as elevator music? I mean... How many ties and dust-collecting paperweights does a person need? Well, Pirate Christian Radio has the perfect solution to boring gifts. The answer is Cloud9 Living. Cloud9 Living offers more than 1,600 unique and memorable experience gifts in 42 cities nationwide. Gifts such as hot air balloon rides, dinner cruises, stock car racing, skydiving, and combat aircraft dogfighting. Cloud9 Living has gifts for every taste and every budget. For more information on Cloud9 Living, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cloud9. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cloud9. 
You'll be glad that you did. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Got a good sermon today. Need a good sermon, man. Uh, <clears throat> let's just say that uh, the sermons lately have been, um, well, <clears throat> yeah, that's um, that's my way of saying not so good. I, I need a little bit of a mental break. So with that, let's cue up our good sermon review music. ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today's sermon comes to us from grace life i think that's the name of the church grace life church grace life pulpit sword and that's the place where you can listen to the online archived sermons of phil johnson whom is really becoming quickly a favorite of mine. Now, I want you to pay close attention to something. This is a sermon that doesn't balance equally law and gospel. This is super heavy on the law. And you know what? I don't think that's a bad thing. You know, law and gospel doesn't basically say that you have to sit down and when you prepare your sermon, you got to make sure that 50% of it's law and 50% of it's gospel. <laughs> this thing is like 95% law, 5% gospel. But the gospel's clearly preached and proclaimed at the end. The sermon is, uh, is entitled, No Other Gods. It's an expository sermon on Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. And when I tell you uh, that Phil Johnson, you know, spends some time looking at other passages of Scripture to help us understand what it means, you will have no other gods before me. Ooh. Yeah, this this the thing I like it is is that the other thing I that I think is commendable to watch in this thing is is that there's no theatrics needed to make the 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 weightiness and the terror of the law come forth. No theatrics needed, and, and uh, Phil Johnson doesn't engage in theatrics. You know what? The uh, ukulele folks are driving me crazy at the moment. Hang on a second here. Hey, could you guys, like, keep it down? Oh, they're not listening to me. Yeah. See, that was an example of theatrics. See, I just wanted to show you... Anyway, so as you listen to the sermon, it's soberly preached, and the power—I mean, seriously—the weight of the scriptures, the power of the weight of the argument from God's word, is the thing that by the end of this, if you're not sitting there going, "Oh man, I'm in trouble. I I can't keep this commandment, and I don't," and all of these different ways in which Phil has gone into the scriptures 
and shown what it means to have other gods aside from God, I, I've probably done all of them. And I not probably I have done all of them and, and I'm in need of help. And the help he offers isn't just try better, try harder. The off the help that Phil offers is Christ and him crucified for our sins and the perfect righteousness of Christ. So with that in mind, uh, let's dive into this good sermon by Phil Johnson. You will have no other gods. Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3 is the first of the Ten Commandments. These are the first words God himself inscribed on those tablets of stone. You shall have no other gods before me. If you're turning to Exodus 20, that's good because... I want to review really the opening verses of that chapter and try to help fix the context of this passage in our minds. So as you're turning there, let me just start reading the first three verses of this chapter, Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now remember... The setting here, this takes place at the foot of Mount Sinai, just before Moses ascends the mountain to commune with God and receive the entire Mosaic Code. The whole congregation of Israel, really close to a million people probably, were gathered there at the foot of the mountain and prepared to hear from God. And what they heard was a voice that delivered these commandments so that all of them could hear. And it wasn't just a voice. There was thunder and lightning and darkness, and the whole earth shook. This was a terrifying experience for the Israelites. Look down at verse 18. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood afar off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. So they begged God to speak directly to Moses alone so that Moses could serve as their mediator. The trauma of hearing God's voice directly was simply too much for them to take. And that's why, after the Ten Commandments had first been delivered verbally like this, Moses went up on the mountain alone to be with God, and he came back with the words of these commandments written in stone by the finger of God himself. The terror of that moment was palpable. Exodus 19, back one chapter, verse 18 says, Now Sinai, Mount Sinai, was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. These were, by the way, no mere earth tremors. The whole mount quaked greatly, it says. I suppose it was more frightening than anything you or I have ever witnessed. I think the closest to this, maybe the most terrifying thing I've ever lived through, was the 1994 Northridge earthquake. And I remember that happened about 4 a.m. or thereabouts, and uh, I was sound asleep one moment, and the next moment just flying up and down off the bed as the house shook. It was as if the very hand of God picked up our condominium and shook it like a shoebox. This was like that. And just imagine that with lightning, thunder, and the voice of God. And all these things were happening when the voice of the Lord spoke to the Israelites. And it says the place from which the voice came 
where it seemed to originate, is described in Exodus 20.21 as thick darkness. So there was this aura of fear and terror that was deliberate. It was to underscore the majesty and the awesomeness of God. Look at verse 20. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of Him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood afar off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Verse 20 intrigues me because Moses begins by saying, do not fear, but then he tells them God wants them to fear him. You see that? This is not a contradiction. It's talking about two different kinds of fear. One is a cowardly fear that makes you hate and avoid the subject of your fear. And in that sense, they were not supposed to be afraid. That's what he means when he says, do not fear. They shouldn't turn away. They shouldn't be repulsed by the terror of it. But the other kind of fear is a healthy fear of God. It's a real fear that recognizes His majesty and, and trembles, quakes with fear at His presence and acknowledges with terror His right to judge while at the same time acknowledging our own sinfulness and confessing that we deserve to be judged. It's a fearful thing. But it's a fear that provokes a desire for holiness while it brings us face-to-face with our utter lack of holiness. That sort of fear is a powerful deterrent to sin, and that's why Moses went on to say, God has come to test you that, you, that, that the fear of Him may be before you, that you may not sin. And while Moses drew near to that thick darkness, the people of Israel drew back, stood back, and stood afar off. And that's why the Ten Commandments then were delivered first in the hearing of the people, but the rest of the law was given to Moses alone. And Moses then delivered the complete law to the Israelites, serving as a kind of intermediary between them and God. That was the way the people of Israel wanted it. That's what they asked for. Now, I think you know the story. And so you remember that while Moses was... Up on the mountain, receiving the rest of the law, the Israelites remained at the base of Sinai where they immediately broke the Ten Commandments. In fact, they broke the first of the Ten Commandments by making and worshiping a graven image. They also broke the second commandment by doing that. That sense of fear that they had at the beginning evidently dissipated pretty quickly and they grew bored while they were waiting for Moses to return. And so in a fit of religious fervor, they made this idol of a golden calf, named it Jehovah, and began dancing naked before that idol in what they figured was an act of worship. And so you see in a very stark and shocking picture how strongly the fallen human heart is bent towards breaking the law of God. And don't be too quick to condemn the Israelites and don't imagine for a moment that you and I are exempt from this. We're the same way. This is a tendency of every fallen human heart. You and I have to do the same thing when we listen to and agree with a sermon about not having any other gods before the Lord in Sunday school. And then before the day is over, we will indulge ourselves with all of our favorite idols as if the Ten Commandments didn't matter. So be forewarned, this commandment is short and it's simple, but it is very demanding 
and it's very easy to violate. In fact, I'll say this plainly, because of our sinful tendencies, because we are fallen creatures, we cannot obey this commandment perfectly. Incidentally, Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, is a commentary on how this commandment is meant to be obeyed. Deuteronomy 6, 5, familiar verse that says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And Jesus quoted that text and referred to it as the first and great commandment, saying it's the, that's the most important of all the commandments. And so understand that and until you love the Lord perfectly with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you haven't really fulfilled even the first of the Ten Commandments. In other words, we look at this first commandment, and from the very first precept of the law, we instantly come, to fa come face to face with how difficult it is for us to keep God's law. In fact, let me say it plainly again, it is impossible for fallen hearts to obey this commandment perfectly. And so right off the bat, before we even get past the first commandment, the law has utterly condemned us already. And it's a reminder that one of the purposes of the law is to confront us with our sin and to leave us with no hope and no alternative other than throwing ourselves on the mercy and the grace of God. This first commandment proves to us that we cannot earn God's favor by obeying His law because we can't obey His law. Now look at the commandment. It sounds simple. You shall have no other gods before me. Here's an interesting fact about the grammar of this statement that's easy to miss in the English translation. You in the Hebrew is a singular pronoun. In modern English, we use the second person pronoun you both plural and singular, so it's ambiguous in number. It can be either singular or plural. He could mean you, all of you, or you individually. But it's not like that in the Hebrew. And in fact, that's reflected in the King James English, where they used to use the word thou as a singular second-person pronoun. This pronoun is supposed to be singular, thou. You, individually, shall have no other gods before me. It speaks to us as individuals, and it concerns every one of us. This was not a general instruction to the nation of Israel to keep every idol but God out of their national pantheon. It was a commandment to individuals, forbidding every one of us ever in any circumstances to set anything or anyone above God or even alongside God in order of priority. It's addressed to individuals. And by the way, these people were just like you and me. They had a tendency to try to shift their spiritual responsibility off onto others. Obviously, that's part of what they're doing when they say to Moses, you go get the law alone. We don't want to hear directly from God. You be our inter intermediary. They were shifting spiritual responsibility. They looked to Moses as the spiritual leader of the nation. And it would have been a natural thing for them to regard this commandment as an order to Moses only, as their spiritual leader. If God had not addressed them as individuals, they might have simply washed their hands of any responsibility to keep this commandment as persons, as individuals. And in fact, that is exactly what Aaron did when Moses came down from the mountain and confronted him over the golden calf incident. According to Exodus 32, in fact, you're not far from there. Turn to Exodus 32 and look at this.
Because it's funny in a way, but sad, very sad. This is exactly what Aaron does. He tries to shift responsibility. Exodus 32, verse 21, Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? See, Moses rebukes Aaron personally. He holds him responsible for this. And Aaron said, verse 22, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what became of him. And so, Aaron says, I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. (laughs) See, no one wanted to take responsibility for this thing. The people no doubt blamed Aaron. And Aaron blamed the people. And in the end, the story he told Moses is it just happened. They threw the gold in the fire and out came this calf. What else could I do? But the commandments were first given in the hearing of all Israel for that very reason. God placed these duties on each person individually. And he underscored that by employing this second, this singular second person pronoun throughout. All the Ten Commandments are that way. They are addressed to individuals as if God spoke to each person by name. And that's why no one can ever escape judgment for having broken these commandments by laying the fault on someone else. And the first commandment is the foundation of all true religion. By the way, the the commandments, all of them are exceedingly broad. If you ever do a full study of all the Ten Commandments, one of the first things you will learn is that they're broad. They're not narrow. They are all-inclusive. They're not specific and and very narrow. Jesus himself interpreted that way. We're not to take a minimalist approach to interpreting the commandments as if we could eliminate from them every duty except what is expressly stated and contained in the letter of the law. Jesus himself didn't do that. He said, look, the commandment that forbids adultery also forbids lust. That's one of the implications of it. And he said the commandments, all of them, he treated them as categories under which are included and implied all of our moral duties before God. And the first commandment, in a wonderful economy of words, sets the stage for all the others by giving us in one simple statement an abundance of duties. And I want to show you that this morning. In fact, there's so much here, there's no way I'm going to be able to cover it all exhaustively in one message. So what I do want to do this morning is give you a sort of overview of the kinds of duties that are implied in this first of the Ten Commandments. And I hope you'll appreciate the breadth of this commandment. I also hope you'll find this immensely practical. This is not abstract doctrine. This isn't something for intellectual curiosity. This commandment places on us, each one of us individually, a host of duties that have the most practical kinds of ramifications. So if you came this morning hoping to have your thinking stimulated or your intellect challenged, set those expectations aside and prepare to be confronted with some practical duties that ought to affect every aspect of the way you live your life. Here are four broad categories of responsibility that this commandment lays on every one of us. And I'll give these to you one at a time slowly so that if you're taking notes, I'll try to make it easy for you. Duty number one, category number one, have 
a God. Have a God. In other words, this commandment rules out atheism, which is a particularly relevant point for people in our generation. This is the first of God's law. This is the first moral commandment in all of the law, and it rules out atheism. We live in an era of atheism. And in fact, I would say in our culture today, outspoken atheism is as common as it's ever been, and certainly in America, it has never been more common or more widespread than it is today. It's a huge problem in our society. Atheism. Atheists today wear their unbelief like a badge of honor. And some of them, it seems like, just try to be as shrill and obnoxious with their unbelief as they can possibly be. That's the legacy, I think, of Madeline Murray O'Hare. If you're 25 years or older, you probably remember her. When I was a kid, she was in the news all the time, Madeline Murray O'Hare. She wasn't an intellectual. In fact, she wasn't very smart, and she certainly wasn't very likable. She was just persistent, and she was absolutely committed to her cause. She was a screeching, abrasive, angry old crone who hated God and loved publicity, and she made atheism her religion. She was a fanatic about it. She founded an organization, American Atheists, and for the past 45 years, they have spearheaded a relentless campaign to eliminate God from civic life and public discourse in America, and they've been remarkably successful at it. Mrs. O'Hare, remember that she, she, just was, she was everywhere for a while, and then she disappeared in the mid-90s, just suddenly disappeared from public view, and in fact, literally disappeared from the face of the earth, 1995. And it's interesting that not a single one of her atheist friends reported her missing when she disappeared. Instead, they, they moved in, they took over her home and her organization and all of her assets, and six years later it was discovered that she'd been murdered. Her body was discovered burned and buried on a ranch in West Texas. She'd been kidnapped, it came to light, and she had been held and tortured for weeks and finally murdered by a fellow atheist who was acting out the logical ramifications of the amoral philosophy Mrs. O'Hare herself had promoted. In other words, the godless culture she championed ultimately destroyed her, just like Scripture says. Proverbs 129 verse, uh, through verse 31 says this, "...they that hate knowledge and don't choose the fear of the Lord, they shall eat of the fruit of their own way." And that famous verse in Galatians 6, 7 also says, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a person sows, that he shall also reap. And atheism is a destructive religion that breeds immorality and wickedness. These days, atheism tries to wear a more intellectual face. Atheism has dozens of celebrity advocates like Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins, and even there are a handful of former evangelical pastors who have abandoned the faith and now go around as, as uh, evangelists for atheism. And atheism is being systematically promoted as something intellectual and sophisticated. It's promoted in universities and on the Internet and through the entertainment media. And it is quickly becoming, and maybe I should say it has already become, the dominant philosophy of our society. In the mid-1990s, when I first began to put 
Spurgeon sermons on the Internet, when I first actually encountered the Internet, I was absolutely shocked to see what a large and devoted nest of fanatical atheists had already made a home on the Internet. Atheists today are frankly more aggressive and more effective and more committed than a lot of Christians are. And they are using the new media to proselytize and being more effective at it than Christians are. And the ranks of devoted atheists are swelling, spurred on by doctrines like evolution and humanism and naturalism. Atheists cater to a society that hates the first commandment and does not want to retain God in its consciousness. It's common these days to see, as you just drive around this valley, to see automobiles sporting atheistic bumper stickers, including those, you know, those mutated fish symbols that honor Darwin rather than Christ. You see that sort of thing everywhere, and it's uncommon to see any characters in movies or television or public life even who are portrayed as Christians and held up as examples as Christians. Instead, they're made villains and caricatures who embody hypocrisy and small-mindedness or cruelty or some other gross evil. And that's the way our culture portrays faith. Let's face it, we live in a society that hates the very thought of God. Atheism has become the state religion of America, thanks to several Supreme Court rulings and a host of legislators we have now who openly call themselves atheists. And all of that is a result of a deliberate rejection of the first commandment. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists. That's the very starting point if you want God's blessing. But the starting point for atheism is exactly the opposite. Atheism is a purposeful violation of the first commandment. It's a leap of faith that denies the existence of God. And the bottom line is atheists choose unbelief because they want anything but God to be worshipped. In the words of Romans 1.28, they do not like to retain God in their knowledge. And that's merely philosophical atheism. There's also a kind of practical atheism that is widely practiced today, practiced even by some people who give lip service to God, who pretend to be religious and claim to believe in God, but they live their lives like atheists. This sort of practical atheism is described in Titus 1, verse 6, which says, they profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. And the sad truth is that even many people who call themselves Christians are practical atheists. They live as if there was no God. They deny Him with their works. Formally, they recognize that God exists, but they will not have Him as God over their lives. They don't obey His authority. They don't love Him. They, they want to maintain a veneer of Christianity or some other form of religion as long as they can think like they like and do what they like. They profess belief in God as long as they don't have to bow to His authority as God. They would never say that they're atheists, but that is exactly what that is. It's atheism. This commandment rules out that kind of life. It demands that we have God as God. 
It demands, therefore, that we love Him and fear Him and make Him first in our lives. It leaves no room for philosophical atheism, which denies the existence of God, but it also leaves no room for hypocrisy, which is the epitome of practical atheism. Okay, are you uh, feeling convicted yet? You ought to. He's going, man, this is harsh. I, I Yikes. Let it sink in. He's preaching law right now, not gospel. And this is the law that nails all of us and shows us our need for a Savior. And even Christians, in many respects, you know, those who truly have faith, can only look to their lives and go, man, I'm practical atheist here because... The things I don't want to do, I do. And the things I don't want to do, I, the things I want to do, I don't do. Who will save me from this body of sin? But this is law. Let it sink in. Atheism is the religion of fools, according to Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there's no God. This first commandment forbids that kind of foolishness. So that's duty number one. Have a God. Here's duty number two, if you're taking these down. Number two. Have the Lord Jehovah for your God. Have the Lord Jehovah for your God. Having a God isn't enough to fulfill this commandment. We must have the right God. Look again at verse 2. I am the Lord your God, Jehovah your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then he says, you shall have no other gods before me. God himself must be our God the true God of Scripture. So duty number one forbids atheism. This second aspect of the first commandment rules out idolatry on the one hand and ignorance on the other. Think about this. Scripture is very clear, by the way, that God alone is God. Second Samuel twenty-two thirty-two says, For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? There is only one true God. And you must have him as your God. Deuteronomy 32, verse 39, God himself speaking tells the Israelites this, See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. No one is greater than our God. And therefore, he demands to be our God. Scripture is full of expressions that underscore the uniqueness, the exclusivity of the one true God. Listen to 1 Samuel 2, verse 2. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. And Isaiah 44, verse 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. And Isaiah 44, verse 8, two verses later, says, Is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God. I know not any. Isaiah 45, verses 5 and 6, continues the theme. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that the people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. From the beginning to the end of Scripture, you find statements like that. Isaiah 46, verse 9, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. 
1 Kings 8, 60, Let all the peoples of the earth know that the Lord is God. There is no other. God has no competitors, and He will tolerate no pretenders. Psalm 96, verse 5, For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heaven. And that's true of our society too, by the way. The gods that are elevated in our culture are, for the most part, not idols made of wood and stone. But they are idols nonetheless. Our society has made gods out of entertainment, sports, money, material things, and a host of silly diversions. We treat them as gods. Now, I'm not suggesting if you have a television set or if you follow sports, you are automatically guilty of idolatry. But I will say this, the moment any of those things or anything else becomes more important to you than God, you are guilty of idolatry and you ought to take that idol off its throne. Here's a test. Ask yourself, what one thing in life would you be least willing to give up? Which of your hobbies or passions or pastimes or even persons in your life, what would be the hardest for you to do without? What if God asked you to get rid of it? What if God took it away from you? What if He sovereignly took from your life the thing you love the best? Would you give it up gladly and delight in the Lord? Or would you resent Him for it? See, God has the right to demand to be the first in our lives. Ouch, man, this is hurting. And let it hurt. It's supposed to. He's preaching the law to condemn your sin. That's what we mean when we say He is God. And if you find yourself resenting God for withholding something from you, you've made that thing an idol. That's why coveting is a sin, prohibited in the Tenth Commandment. So the commandments come full circle. If there's anything you would refuse to give up for God or anything you desire more than you desire God, that thing has taken first place in your life and you are in violation of the first commandment. And you know what 1 Corinthians 8 verse 4 says? It says this, We know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. If something is so dear to you that you would be crushed if God took it away, be careful. That thing might be an idol in your heart. But it's nothing, Scripture says. In the broad sweep of eternity, nothing that you love is more important or more worthy of your love than God Himself. Why is it so hard for us to keep that perspective? Because if we really grasped who God is and how great and how worthy of glory He is, we would never think otherwise. But we find ourselves thinking otherwise all the time. I like Jeremiah 14, verse 22. Are there any among the false gods of the nation that can bring rain? Or can the heavens give showers? Are you not He, O Lord our God? We set our hope on You, for You do all these things. Everything good that comes to us comes from the hand of God. And idolatry is simply the sin of allowing the gifts God has given us to become more important than the giver. Remember that God made all these things. And 1 Timothy 6, verse 17 says, He richly provides us with everything to enjoy. He wants us to enjoy what He's given us. But once we begin to enjoy what God has given us more than we enjoy God Himself, we have violated the first commandment and we need to rid our hearts of idols. 
Did you realize that hypocrisy is also a kind of idolatry? Listen to Ezekiel Hopkins. He was a Puritan writer. He said this, When we perform duties of religion only to be seen and applauded of men, we make God only our pretense, but men our idols. And we That's right. The Scripture teaches this. I mean, there's even a Greek word uh, designed for this uh, exact sin. It's I forget the word offhand, but it roughly translated, it means uh, uh, eye works, doing works that are meant to be seen by people. It's all about you know being seen by somebody's eyes. Yeah. We set up as many gods before him as we have spectators and observers. I'll bet you've never thought of hypocrisy as a kind of idolatry before. But if you care more about what other people think than you care about what God thinks... And that's the essence of hypocrisy. If that's the way you find yourself thinking, God isn't really first in your heart. Remember I said that this duty to have the true God as our God not only rules out idolatry, it also rules out ignorance. And I want to elaborate on that a little bit. To know God, to have God be a God to us, we must know Him. And our knowledge of Him must be true. If you foster ignorance of the true God or ignorance of His Word, you are guilty of violating the first commandment because the right worship of God presupposes that we know the object of our worship. And if you don't take time to learn the Word of God and to know what God has revealed about Himself, you are doing no better than those pagans in Athens who erected an altar to the unknown God. If your worship isn't grounded in a true knowledge of the true God, then your worship is really just superstition, even if it looks right externally. Christ, remember, was rebuking the woman at the well when he told her in John 4.22, you worship what you do not know. Zeal without knowledge is not a good thing. The Samaritans were worshiping God in ignorance. They had retained the name and some semblance of Jehovah worship, but it was so mingled with confusion and error and paganism that it was tantamount to a kind of gross idolatry. And unfortunately, if you think about it, that is probably true of most religion that goes by the name Christianity today. Some people have substituted tradition in the place of truth. And instead of studying to show themselves approved unto God, they allow some prefabricated liturgy or some robed priest to tell them how to go mindlessly through some ritual. Don't mishear him here. It'd be really easy to think that this is just a swipe at liturgies. No, he said people who replace the truth with tradition and who mindlessly walk through some ritual. Now, Phil Johnson, some of his most respected colleagues, attend churches where there is a liturgy. He's not attacking liturgy per se. It's where truth is replaced and rote ritual is the thing that people walk through. The uh, I think what is the uh, 
ex opera operator is the uh, Latin phrase that I think that uh, really is at the heart of what he's basically saying here. It, just by merely going through the ritual, going through the steps, you know, God is placated and and the the right things happen. It's a form of works righteousness, and it is a form of idolatry. Phil is making a good point here. Don't be tempted. I know. I, listen, I'm a liturgical guy. I attend a confessional Lutheran church, and I heard what he said correctly, and I agree with what he said. It's all too easy to replace the truth, the true worship of God, with just walking through the steps. And listen, every church has a liturgy. Every church has a particular order in which they do things, and it's really easy to uh, just slip into autopilot. And I think that's what he's condemning here. Uh, let's continue. It's not. It's a violation of the first commandment. Other churches put entertainment in place of devotion to the Lord, and their worship services are designed for the pleasure of the congregation rather than for the pleasure and the glory of God. They cater to the human will rather than God's will. They've deposed the God of Scripture, and they've set their own personal preferences in His place. That's a common problem in the evangelical world, very close to home. But that, too, is a violation of the first commandment. If God is to be your God, then you must know Him as He has revealed Himself, and that means you should take an active interest in studying about God. A.W. Tozer wrote this. He said, The essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of Him. And then Tozer went on to add this, that kind of idolatry begins in the mind and may be present where no overt act of worship has even taken place. In other words, you can be an idolater just by the way you think about God if your thoughts about God are wrong. Think of that. When you think thoughts about God that are not worthy of Him, or when you imagine something about Him that is not true of Him, you're guilty of idolatry. You're creating an idol in your own mind. And the only remedy for that is a precise knowledge of the true God. So if you're entertaining thoughts about God that are untrue of Him, you're not having the true God as your God. Every Christian, therefore, ought to have a passionate interest in studying theology. Because theology is nothing other than the study of God. Every Christian ought to have a passion for the truth because God is a God of truth. And yet these things are so lacking today. Turn off your television set some evening and study. And I'm not suggesting you should read those trashy rapture novels. Read something that will truly feed your soul and bring you face to face with the God who reveals himself in Scripture. Some of the best, most edifying literature I have ever read is writing that deals with the attributes of God, writing about God. If you want a real treat, read a book that is both easy to read and rich in content, J.C. Ryle's book, Holiness, which is all about the holiness of God, or Stephen Charnock, superb in his classic, The Existence and Attributes of God. Or if you want something simpler, Tozer, the knowledge of the holy, or the pursuit of God. Both of those are priceless. But above all, study Scripture for yourself. 
It's your personal duty. It's not merely the duty of your pastors and teachers, but your duty as an individual to study, to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You can't have God as your God unless you know Him, and you cannot know Him apart from how He has revealed Himself in His Word. So don't take my word for it. Study for yourself. Don't rely solely on what you are taught in church to inform your knowledge of God. You must meet Him in His Word for yourself. And if you're not doing that, you don't really have Him for your God. So that's duty number two. Have the Lord Jehovah for your God. Here's a third duty implied by this first commandment. Number three, have only the true God for your God. Have only the true God for your God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Jesus said it like this, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Luke 4, verse 8. That forbids polytheism or the worshiping of many gods. It also forbids the kind of religion the Samaritans practiced, which is described for us in 2 Kings 17, verses 32 and 33. It says this, They feared the Lord and appointed from among themselves all sorts of people as priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. Those were pagan places. So, Scripture says, They feared the Lord but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. That is called syncretism. It's a practice of mingling false religion with true religion, syncretism. And it's a huge problem in American evangelicalism today. People don't mind having God as their God. They just don't like the exclusivity of Christianity. They'll take God as long as they can cling to their idols too, whatever those idols are. And in American evangelicalism, for the most part, uh, people seem happy, perfectly happy to retain, let people retain their idols as long as they give lip service to the God of Scripture. This commandment rules out that way of thinking. I have confronted syncretism often in my travels overseas. You talk to the typical Hindu in India, and he is perfectly happy to embrace Christ as God as long as he can simply add Christ to his pantheon of other gods. Roman Catholicism worldwide practices the worst kind of syncretism, always blending Christianity with whatever forms of religion it encounters. And that's why the Catholic Church over the centuries has absorbed so many kinds of idolatry and superstition along the way. But this commandment rules out that kind of thinking. Look at the wording of the commandment once more. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, in English, the meaning of the words before me is kind of ambiguous. You could read it as if it simply means that we must give God first place. Don't set any other gods above me. That's what I used to think this meant when I heard the Ten Commandments as a child. That's how I always interpreted this, and I thought that was the extent of it. Don't have any other gods. Don't put anybody else first before me. But in the Hebrew, the meaning of the words is different, and it's absolutely clear. Before me, that phrase means before my face, in my presence, in my sight. It doesn't simply mean that God must be at the head of all of our gods. It means that no other gods at all are tolerable in His sight. 
So having God as our God means we must give up all other idols. Modern evangelicalism often follows a practice that is antithetical to the spirit of this command. Modern evangelism often holds forth Christ as a God who can simply be added to our lives to make them better, you know? We don't tell people clearly enough that if they have Christ as their God, they will have to give up all their idols. And in fact, there are entire churches today that structure their outreach to unchurched people so that nothing they say will ever make unchurched people uncomfortable with the claims of Christ. In effect, they tell them, look, you can have Christ and keep your idols too. Some of those churches themselves have made idols of entertainment. But the first commandment reveals a God who will tolerate no other gods or idols of any kind. He demands to be loved and worshipped exclusively with all our hearts, souls, and minds. And those who want to add God to their lives without giving up every other idol simply cannot have God as their God. One other thing to notice about this commandment is that it is given to us with no argument and no qualification. It's a simple, straightforward command. God doesn't give us an argument why this must be. He is God, and therefore He has the right simply to say this, and we have to obey. And it means you can't have God unless you're willing to give up your other idols. I always think of the story of the Philistines. I love that story where they captured the ark of God in battle against the Israelites. Now, this is where I would have to say you have to use a little bit of caution. The reason why I, is my question immediately to Phil is, is, are you fulfilling this? Because you're making it clear that unless I am willing. But see, the, the reason I need a Savior is because, well, I'm sinful. And I prove by my thoughts, words, and deeds that I am not willing to do this. In fact, every time I sin, I show that in my flesh I am not willing to obey God, and I don't. Israelites, and they figured they could add the God of Israel to their pantheon, and so they took the ark and put it in the temple of Dagon, who was, according to most accounts, some kind of fish god, like a backward mermaid, you know, with the body of a man and the head of a fish, and it was a little statue that they kept in this shrine, and they put the ark of God in there with it. And according to 1 Samuel 5, verse 3, when the people of Ashdod arose early the next day, behold, Dagon, this statue of Dagon, had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. That always makes me laugh, you know, because God will not allow other gods in His presence, and even a stone idol of a fish head falls on its face before Him. But the Philistines weren't finished. Scripture says they took Dagon... And they set him in his place again. And when they arose on the next morning, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off upon the threshold. Only the stump of Dagon was left to him. So now he's not a fish god anymore. He's a stump god. (laughs) I love the humor in that story. But, you know, it has a very serious point. God will allow no other gods in his presence. And therefore, if you would have him as your God, you must rid your heart of all idols. That's not easy. And it's not very seeker-sensitive. But that is what the first commandment teaches. That's duty number three. In fact, if you've lost your place, here's where we are. Duty number one is that you must have a God. 
Duty number two, you must have the Lord Jehovah for your God. Duty number three, you must have only the true God for your God. And now here's duty number four. You must have the true God with sincerity and true devotion. You must have the true God with sincerity and true devotion. Having no other gods before God means that you must worship Him as He demands to be worshipped. And again, He demands our worship with a whole heart. Listen again to Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. This is one of the most important texts in all of Scripture. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And remember, Jesus said that's the first and great commandment. That's the heart of this first commandment. That's how you do this first commandment. It's the most important of all the commandments is what Jesus meant. And it clearly is implied here in the first of the Ten Commandments. Now, we've already seen that this first commandment rules out atheism, hypocrisy, idolatry, polytheism, syncretism, and ignorance. And now we see it also rules out profaneness and half-heartedness. What do I mean by profaneness? The word profane is derived from Latin words that mean outside the temple. Actually, the Latin phrase from which we get that term is procol afano, which literally means far from the temple. It speaks of a contempt for or an irreverence toward or a neglect of that which is sacred. A profane person is someone who stays far from the temple, someone who doesn't care for that which God deems holy. He neglects or he disregards it. That's why Esau is described in Hebrews 12:16 as a profane person who, for one morsel of food, sold his birthright. He didn't care about the birthright. Even though it represented divine blessings, it was a spiritual thing and he was a carnal man. And so he ignored it. He scorned it. He deemed it unimportant. And he valued a mess of pottage, a bowl of lentil soup, more than he valued that birthright. That's profaneness. Profaneness in biblical terms means the slighting or the neglecting of things that are holy and sacred. That's a sin you don't hear preached against very often. But it's a clear violation of this first commandment to neglect that which is holy. That's one of the clear ramifications of this commandment, which orders us to set God above everything else in our heart and our affections and to permit nothing that might become an idol to encroach on His rightful place. Half-heartedness is the worst kind of profaneness. And that's made clear by the first and great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. There is absolutely no room for half-heartedness or for nonchalance. Lukewarmness makes Christ sick, according to Revelation 3. In fact, what this commandment calls for is the polar opposite of indifference. Let me put it in practical terms. To have God as our God is to choose Him as our portion. The psalmist said this in Psalm 73, 26, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That word portion has a particular meaning in the context of the Old Covenant. It speaks of a person's inheritance and a specific part of his inheritance. Psalm 16, verses 5 and 6 
The Lord is my chosen portion. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. And a person's inheritance, especially in the context of the Old Testament in Israel, was something of immense value, something he set his heart on, and something Scripture commanded him to treasure deeply. He valued it throughout his entire life. The Israelites' inheritance usually involved a portion of land, and the land itself was at the heart of the covenant God made with that nation. And so a person's portion became the place where he lived and the place around which his whole life and all his possessions revolved. It was something immensely precious to him, his portion. And if we would have God be our God, we must choose him as our portion. In, this, in a similar way as to the way Caleb chose for his portion a mountain that he had set his heart on for many years. We need to say, like Jacob did in Genesis 28, 21, the Lord shall be my God. I choose him as my portion. We're called upon to make that a deliberate choice, to embrace the God of Scripture as our God forever. Joshua 24, 15, choose you this day whom you will serve. And remember that when Elijah confronted the Israelites on Mount Carmel, he said, to th he said this to them, how long, he said, will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, follow Him. So we're called upon to choose Him with our wills, to love Him with our whole hearts, to follow Him with all of our souls, to serve Him with all of our strength. There is simply no place for half-heartedness in this commandment. It calls us to a wholehearted, exclusive love and devotion. Anything less than that is not worthy of Him. And if you will not have Him with your whole heart, you simply can't have Him at all. That's the faith Scripture calls us to. A lesser devotion is not even true Christianity. And that's why Jesus said in Luke 9.62, No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. So how does your faith measure up? Let's be honest, and I said this at the very start, this commandment utterly condemns all of us. <laughs> yep. Not one of us has lived up to this commandment. We are all fallen and sinful, and our hearts are wretched, and we're not capable of perfect obedience to this commandment. It's the first commandment in God's law, the first principle of moral righteousness, and it condemns sinners without giving us any way of salvation. The way of salvation is in the gospel. And the gospel teaches us that Christ became a man, the perfect man, and throughout his life he did obey this commandment with absolute perfection. He was sinless. In the words of 1 Peter 2.22, He committed no sin, neither was any deceit found in his mouth. Hebrews 4.15 says, He was in every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 7.26, he was holy, innocent, unstained, rendering perfect obedience to this law and every law of God throughout his entirely earthly life as a man. And then at the end of that life, he nevertheless bore the full penalty of sin on behalf of those who believe so that in the same way their sins are imputed to him, his righteousness can be imputed to them. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for... Oh, man, thank you, thank you, thank you. I tell you, you know, I, man, 
That preaching of the law, just I was very uncomfortable. Why? Because, oh man, I'm guilty. And here's the blessed and glorious gospel. Salvation is not found in the keeping of the law. It's found in the gospel and Christ's perfect righteousness imputed to us. Amen. Our sake, the Father made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, we get full credit for his perfect obedience to this commandment, to all of the commandments. That righteousness is imputed to those who believe. They don't earn it because by definition you can't earn it, but it is graciously given through faith, full salvation, free forgiveness for every sin, beginning with the many ways we violate this commandment. That's what the gospel teaches. Now understand, that doesn't remove any of the duties that are implied in this commandment. It it liberates us from the threat of judgment because those who are under grace are no longer under the condemnation of the law. But Paul asks in Romans 6.15, what then? Are we going to sin because we're not under the law but under grace? By no means. Those who are truly saved love righteousness and hate sin, and this commandment spells out the very first principle of righteousness. Okay, well, we, we Lutherans in our confessions, we, this is showing us what a good work is. We are not set free to sin. We are set free from sin. Here, then, this commandment shows us what a good work is. So let's embrace the duties this commandment sets before us, and let's ask God to give us hearts that are full of love for Him, and let's strive to put the Lord first in everything we do, say, think, and love. Lord, we confess that from everlasting to everlasting, You alone our God. Our hearts are prone to idolatry and to self-love. We neglect the truth that You alone are God. Forgive us. Cleanse our hearts. Cleanse our minds. Fill us with a passion for Your glory. Give us a corresponding hatred for the gods of this world. Give us a distaste for all the worldly distractions of sin. Teach our hearts to fear Your name that we might learn through the power of Your Spirit to devote all our heart, soul, mind, and strength to the pursuit of your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Whoa. <laughs> I told you, 95% law and just just enough gospel. In this particular case, it's not about a formula of law and gospel equally apportioned. The preaching of the law had to take that long and had to be as focused as it was in order to strip away our self-righteousness and show us that we are not keeping this commandment. And then the glorious gospel is presented. Jesus Christ died on the cross for all of your idolatries, of all the times that you have made other things God other than Him. Today's committing of this sin yesterday's and until the day that you die. And now we are set free in Christ to love God, to have no other gods before him, to delight in his word, to delight in his commandments, to delight in gathering together 
to receive God's word, forgiveness, and his sacraments. Mm-hmm. What'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. My email address, if you want to email me, is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. By the way, if you want to support us, visit the website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the yellow buttons. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless us in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of our sins. Amen. 